Welcome to the Investment Turnaround. In this podcast series, Dr. Mariana Bosazan interviews world-renowned investors, scientists, and other personalities who share their solutions toward the sustainable transformation of our financial systems. Today's guest is Robert Berman, founder and CEO at Fair Ventures Social Forestry. The former McKinsey project manager spent the last 10 years investing in the sustainability space and demonstrated how to make triple bottom line investments successful. Robert holds an MBA from IESE Business School, a master's degree in geology, and a bachelor's degree in economics from the University of Munich. So my first and most favorite question is, what happened in your life that put you on this path to what I call integral sustainability? What happened specifically in your own life that led to your transformation from being a McKinsey project manager to now turning the world, the way we do sustainable forestry? <laughs> yeah, that's a, a very broad question. And I think it goes even back beyond my McKinsey time. I think it even started like me being a little boy, like with eight years, writing a, a letter to our mayor asking him to plant more trees in our village. Um, so I, I always had that interest in, in taking care of the environment and protecting the environment. Um, and as you said in your introduction, I uh, studied geology. Uh, wanted to somehow get into that space, but uh, somehow got distracted by money and went into consulting after university, uh, which uh, was good in a sense because I learned a lot. Um, but after a while, um, I actually wanted to get back on track and do something useful. And I embarked a long journey of impact investing and sustainability starting more than 10 years ago in uh, different setups uh, became uh, was invited to become a board member of a foundation um, running projects in mainly in africa um, bringing sustainable energy to uh, villages in africa um, and uh, yeah built uh, impact investing for for another foundations a couple of years later uh, back in 2009 and uh, from there uh, back to renewable energies always in an investing setup and somehow what I what I often came across was, a lot of good projects that didn't have enough uh, economic background. And I came across a lot of investors that didn't really understand impact beyond financial impact. And what really um, like triggered me is like bringing these things together. And uh, so I really decided I now need to step out of the investing space and need to create that project that really can do both sides of the metal, like can generate um, an attractive return for investors so we can really get money to, to scale whatever we do and at the same time create that ecological and social impact that is so much needed. Yeah. 
So I think this is this is a bit the journey that uh, I went through um, over the last like 10, 15 years um, and that brought me here. So can you give us a few more details? I, 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 I couldn't agree with you more, of course. But since our audience are both, you know, from both sides, entrepreneurs, social entrepreneurs, but also uh, entrepreneurs who want to bring the sustainability aspect within their regular enterprises that uh, traditionally has been measured by financial only. And mm. on the other side, investors who, as you said, want to have an impact with their investments, but they don't know how to integrate the two. So what actually, uh, give us a little insight in detail. How did you bring these two factors together, given the, the way our success is currently measured by financial only? Yeah, I think that's, that question really comes to the essence of things. How, how do you actually do that if you're, if you're used to being measured by, by financial indicators only? And what I'm convinced is that it really takes a change in mindset, which is not easy to do, uh, especially if you come from the investing space and you're you grow up in a certain in a certain way and you're socialized with certain key indicators that you need to perform on. So it really starts from the top yeah, in in each organization. Yeah? If you if you convince yourself um, that you want to become really sustainable and not only greenwash things, then you really need to dig down to what does that really mean for your organization and for your performance indicators. And uh, in in our case, um, I can give you the concrete example of venture social forestry. I mean, what we're doing is we're um, we are uh, doing reforestation of degraded areas in Indonesia. Um, so this is really a tough environment that normally nobody else is touching. So how do you um, get into uh, an economic model there? The, the, the ecological impact is pretty clear. Yeah, if you do that, um, you bring land back into economic use. You have trees growing where there was nothing before. Uh, that is pretty straightforward, but you have to make that work economically. And you can never do that without the people. So um, you need to convince people that this is a good idea to have the social impact. And you need to, in, you need to convince investors to invest in that um, to really make it scalable. So what you really need to do um, is you need to have your vision clear where you want to go. And you need key indicators on each of the three levels. So not only the financial ones, but also the social and uh, and the ecological ones. So if you're an entrepreneur in a, let's say, a more traditional field and you want to make your uh, your company more sustainable, that's the first thing you need to do. You need to ask yourself, what are my key indicators on on the other levels, on a, maybe on an ecological level, whatever it means in your industry, and on a social level. So this is this is basically the first step you need to do, and it really needs to start from the top. Right. So let's start at the top. 
<laughs> we keep uh, getting uh, interest from uh, these countries, for instance, in you know building sustainable data centers in this part of the world. And uh, one of the key issues that we have with that is the corruption. Mm -hmm. uh, because obviously that's part of the way things are done in that part of the world. How and, and of course we don't want to go along with that. So <laughs> not only because the German law or the European law would put us in prison, but because it's just beyond our ethical standard. How mm -hmm. do you how do you address that? Um, we basically take the same stance. So there's zero corruption in in our uh, organization. Um, you're right. In Indonesia, in in some places, this is still a problem. Um, it's improving a lot under the the um, current government, but it's still there. And um, again, as I said, starting from the top, yeah, um, you need to be very clear what your limits are and what you do and what you don't do. Yeah? Um, and zero corruption for us meaning that we also we don't jump on any opportunity. Yeah? We want to be super clear. We are absolutely transparent with everything we do, and uh, we don't pay any money under the table. And of course, this makes implementation um, quite hard sometimes. And uh, you you need a lot of patience, yeah, if you only go the official ways. And uh, yeah, that's basically. Um, basically what you what you need to do and you need to you, you need to focus on that and never depart from that road yeah because if you do it once then the story is over yeah so can you give us a concrete example as to how you did it um which which should contain of course one thing like how do you set up the the measurement criteria and how do you report on on it because that's the only way how you know that you actually achieved your goals. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, if I, if I stay for a minute on the on the corruption issue, there's no no real measurement criteria on zero corruption. It's just a, a zero corruption policy. But what does that mean for us in practice? It, for example, means that we're only working with uh, counterparties that have official land titles. Yeah, because if you don't do that, um, then you're in a in a, a gray zone, and that hits you somewhere. Maybe not immediately, but it will be coming back to you. So um, this is one way that we make sure um, we don't get into any corruption issues. Um, and we also, um, when it comes to land titles. Um, and this is actually a very tricky one regarding corruptions. We always work with local partners. So we don't hold the land titles ourselves, but our partners uh, do have the land titles. So uh, what does that mean concretely? It doesn't mean that we outsource corruption, but we are working actually with, uh, with local communities within a um, government program, uh, which is called social forestry which provides land titles to communities and there's no corruption in that uh, provision of land titles or permits 
because there's also no money within the communities to buy those titles. So this is basically our way of dealing with that situation. And we we don't have um, to face any any corruption issues when it comes to land titles and and working on on clear land. Let me make sure that our audience understands the term, um, the word title. Title is for those who have never bought or sold land outside of Germany or Europe. That's the certificate, the ownership certificate for owning the land. That's called a title. Um, the other thing that I I wanted to put on the table was also how did you get into these connections? How did you how long did it take you to make those friendships, you know, with local partners? How without bribing anybody? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, very good question. It's actually uh, an interesting setup because Fair Ventures actually started out as a non-profit um, organization. So we, we ran a non-profit program for the last five years in Indonesia in our working area um, and established all of our relationships with the local communities, but also with the uh, local officials, but also with government officials at the ministries, uh, Ministry of Forestry and other ministries in Jakarta uh, from a non-profit uh, organization standpoint. And uh, last year, out of our experience and, um, and seeing how... Uh, seeing the success of the program, we actually said, okay, uh, if we want to really scale this, we have to get out of uh, out of the comfort zone of uh, running a nonprofit. We actually have to uh, found a social enterprise, and we have to do this in a for-profit setup because uh, otherwise we don't have any chance to grow this to a significant scale. And in the last five years, we planted a million trees with the with the communities out there, with more than a thousand farmers on more than 800 hectares. And it all sounds nice, and it's nice for that thousand people we worked with. But we have, depending on the the report you look at, we have between one or two billion billion hectares of degraded land on this planet. So if you really want to get to a significant scale in what we do and really have an impact on on the climate uh, and uh, on the CO2 sequestration with what we do, um, we have to get into a scalable model. So this is actually our evolution um, from a non-profit uh, setup to a social enterprise setup. Um, and uh, also that, of course, helped us in establishing all of that relationships and uh, making our life a lot easier and getting around the, the issue of bribery in Indonesia. So tell us about the legislation locally. How does this work? So if I understood you correctly, you were locally originally starting uh, as an NGO and then you start you you changed your legal affiliation from an NGO into a social enterprise. Uh, almost correct. Um, the NGO is still around. We're actually running an NGO in the social enterprise in parallel. Uh, 
um, which is an interesting setup um, that I was already discussing more than 10 years ago in, in my foundation work. And everybody back then agreed that this would be a good idea, uh, but I've never seen anybody doing it. Now we're actually doing it ourselves. And it actually um, uh, then helps us cover like mostly R&D work and socialization work with the communities through the uh, nonprofit arm and taking the social enterprise and the, uh, the business side of things with the with the for-profit arm. And that's actually a, a pretty nice split. Uh, it also makes, makes life a bit complicated sometimes, especially when it comes to accounting. So um, if you want to create transparency in that kind of setup, uh, it's a lot more work than if you just run one organization. Um, but in general, the setup is pretty helpful. So you have a, um, like a hybrid organization right now. Yes. Okay. So let's go down to, um, to the real business that you're doing right now. Tell us a little bit about, you know, you started telling us about the uh, 1 million trees that you have planted on 100 hectares, hectares. How, how did you do that? How did you start on this and how does it work? How do you actually run this business? What exactly is it? Okay, there's there's two sides of it. What we what we did in the last five years, that's the non-profit business, and there's uh, it was actually a test of of our hypothesis. Does it really work to help people create an economic alternative on degraded areas so they don't have to um, keep on going with their slash and burn agriculture, which destroys the rainforest? Or other alternatives that people have is going to gold mining, which destroys the, the forest as well, or sell out to the palm oil companies, which, um, as you know, um, cut into the forest as well. So all the alternatives that people have today is actually destroying the existing forest that is still there. So our working hypothesis that we started with was if we create an economic alternative for people on the degraded areas, and unfortunately we have more than enough of those, um, then people would really switch to a sustainable way of earning their income and we can protect the, uh, the existing forest that is still there. And in the first five years on the on the 800 hectares we worked, um, this was actually a, a test. Um, does this hypothesis really work? Um, can we create an economic alternative to the trees that we want to work with, really grow there? Can we sell the stuff afterwards? Um, but we did not have uh, an economic interest in that operation uh, for our own organization. So it was really out of a nonprofit organization. So we were supporting farmers with uh, providing them with seedlings, with uh, providing them with the knowledge regarding how to plant the trees, how to do the maintenance, etc. Um, but whatever they planted is actually owned by them and we do not have an economic footprint in this and this is different now with the um, with our social enterprise going forward we go into cooperations with um, communities 
as I said before, this is a social forestry program of the Indonesian government. This is our main focus right now. There are other routes we are evaluating as well, uh, which are pretty interesting uh, with other clear land title holders. Uh, but right now we're working in the social forestry program. So this means that we enter into a cooperation contract with the communities that actually hold the permit for a piece of land. And we started with a community which actually has a permit for roughly 3,000 hectares. Um, and um, what we provide in this cooperation is we're providing um, capital that you need to invest upfront into some machinery, into infrastructure, into all the preparation that you need to do to really be able to start planting and using the land. Um, we transfer the knowledge to the people um, and are actually providing our management expertise of how to implement the things in the field. And we are creating the access to markets because one thing that we always did already in the nonprofit work is we always worked across the whole value chain. And we didn't actually start with the communities in the field, but we actually started going to the timber industry in Indonesia, seeing where the markets are, what kind of products they use and what they would be buying. So we really make sure that whatever we plant with the communities, there's a market for them afterwards. So um, we are also creating the market um, for the communities. So that's the three things we bring to the party, the, cap the capital to start this, the know-how, and the access to the markets. This is actually what, what the communities are missing, even though they get uh, a permit to, to the land and are able to use the land. And the communities, uh, they bring in the land title and they bring in the workforce. So we're actually creating jobs for the people that they can uh, work with us in the field, do the planting of the trees and the cash crops between the trees. Um, do the maintenance, um, work in the harvest. Um, so they are actually owning an income uh, from that work and there will also be a profit sharing with the community when uh, we actually sell the produce. This is, um, this is the model how we are working with them. As I said, we now uh, started with a community on 3,000 hectares. There are other communities already lined up that are interested in working with us as well. And we are currently creating the showcase. So as you said in your introduction, we are, um, we are working in, in this field of sustainable agroforestry. But we are also at the stage where we have to prove this model on a significant scale. So we are right now, we are creating the, um, the economic showcase for our social business model. And if I can show that this works on 3000 hectares, I'm able, I'm basically able to, to scale that up uh, on a, on a much larger scale as well. And also have a blueprint to have it replicated, not only by financial social forestry, but also by other organizations, maybe also in other countries. 
Wonderful. So let's go back to the products that you're selling. I have several questions. What are these products? When we met for lunch, you showed me some beautiful pieces of wood. They were light. Can you describe those products a little bit for those who are interested and uh, who are whom I invite to join you? But let us uh, give people a little bit more detail. Okay, I try to do that verbally. It's much easier when you when you have a look at it. And uh, please, everyone, feel free to visit our websites and, and look at the pictures, which maybe show more than a thousand words. But um, yeah, we'll, there, we'll provide there, the details on the on where to, people can find you, your phone number, where they can reach you, and so on. But for now, just describe, make us, um, you know, um, entice us. <laughs> okay, there are, there are a couple of uh, very interesting products you can uh, you can do the, from from those operations, and I I maybe start with the timber products, but there are also other products. As I said, we are also growing cash crops and non-timber forest products. I'll I'll get to those. With the timber, we are working with lightwood species um, um, that are uh, from tropical zones. So they are also uh, known to Indonesia and to the market, as I said. So the industry is used to working with it. Um, these are fast-growing trees. These are um, actually trees that are growing as the first trees when a new rainforest is growing. So they um, grow very fast and they build a, a canopy that gives shade to the, to the hardwood species that then grow underneath and uh, grow much slower. So we are focused on the lightwood species. The big advantage is um, they only take a seven-year cycle until you can harvest a tree that has a 30 centimeter plus diameter uh, and is more than 20 meters high. So if you compare that to, to growth rates in Europe, it's um, roughly four times the, the growth rate. So you, you really produce a lot of timber. At the same time, you capture a lot of CO2. And the products um, that are being produced from this timber normally go into the construction industry, which means they have uh, an average lifetime uh, in terms of, of carbon storage of 15 years, which is two times the cycle that the tree needs to grow. So when you look at it from a carbon capture point of view, this is a very good story. Um, in terms of products, um, there are a lot of uh, um, lightwood products that go, for example, into the caravan and yachting industry whenever you need uh, light but uh, solid uh, products you can work with. Um, there's a, a lot of volume going into still basic products um, in the construction industry, but there's also very interesting uh, stuff you can do with that kind of timber, um, which we are working on with, uh, with universities and uh, industry associations, um, like glue laminated beams uh, that can actually be used in, in constructions. You've maybe seen like sport halls, uh, like for ice hockey and stuff, made out of wood with those huge uh, beams as the uh, basic um, uh, holding construction um, of that whole hall that are 
uh, often spanning like 50, 60 meters. This is actually stuff you can do from that wood. And uh, there's still in Indonesia, the industry still needs to take a couple of steps to go through all the certifications. But this is actually also something we are working uh, on together with the industry to get into some more um, high margin products like this. So that's that's basically on the on the timber side um, and on the non timber forest product side we are working on uh, with different cash crops. Uh, right now we are working with uh, wild striped peanuts. That's the first product we are producing right now. Um, but there's uh, also a lot of other things we're currently testing. Um, and uh, one very interesting product I, I want to tell you about is uh, Rattan, which uh, a lot of people might still know um, uh, from, uh, from the Rattan furniture that were pretty popular in the 80s. Yeah. But the rattan itself is actually a very, uh, very interesting material, and we are working with a with a German company that has some patented processes of uh, molding the rattan. You can actually shape it and uh, also dye it in whatever color you like, uh, and put it into any shape you like with the right process that this company developed, and this is. Uh, something that for example the automotive industry is very interested right now to uh, replace the plastics in the interior of the car so um, we are in a partnership with that company to support them with a sustainable supply of rattan meaning that we are working with the communities not on the degraded areas but actually on the uh, still existing forest areas so um, we are replanting rattan in those existing forest areas that then can be harvested and be uh, sold to that company. Um, and in that way, we also put an economic value on the existing forest areas, which actually gives another incentive to people to keep the forest standing. And this is, from my point of view, a very nice combination of of uh, of an economic uh, opportunity um, in combination with a, with a conservation opportunity and and keeping the forests that we all need. Beautiful. So let's go to the economic um, um, aspect. Can you give us a, a little bit? insights into what the economic upside is or what is the attraction from the financial perspective? Do you have such numbers or are you still in the investment phase? Um, we actually built the model over the last three or three and a half years. Um, and it is pretty stable. So basically, um, from what I described, how this business model is working, most of the um, revenues come from the agroforestry part of it. So from, from the work that we do on the degraded areas. So the main source of income is the sale of the timber. Um, and there's a, a second income stream from the non-timber forest products, so either cash crops or things that I just described, like rattan. 
Um, there is a third source that we haven't explored a lot yet, but there, uh, there is additional uh, potential with, uh, which is the CO2. So we are looking into that right now and uh, trying to um, create a model how to certify our CO2 footprint and make that available to people who are interested in offsets. Um, but this is something we we are just starting with, and it adds to the potential. So these are the three basic um, income streams that we're having. Um, and then uh, on the partnership side, as I said before, there's uh, payments to the communities in in two ways. So people are getting paid for the work they do in the field. Uh, or other positions they take within that partnership. And there will be uh, uh, profit sharing with the communities, um, which means from an investor perspective, if all of that is paid for and the communities are paid for uh, either for work or for profit sharing, there's still uh, an IRR of uh, 10 to 11% that we are looking at. Well, that's that's significant. Ten to eleven percent IRR. Wow, this is really wonderful. So that brings us to um, to the next question. So, how can people get in touch with you? How can they uh, learn more about what you're doing? How can they reach you? Um, well, the easiest thing is to just call me. <laughs> Um, no, uh, the first thing, uh, if somebody wants to have more information, is our our two websites. There's one website for the non-profit organization and a new one for the social enterprise. Uh, they're both pretty straightforward. Uh, the non-profit is fairventures.org and uh, the social enterprise is fairventures.earth. So you can find a lot of uh, information there um, about both uh, sides of the story, the non and the for-profit part. And then actually, I, I was not joking, so feel free to contact me directly if you're interested to learn more or want to go into more detail of the economics or how we're working with the communities or whatever is your level of interest. Um, you can actually reach me either by mail, robert.berman at fairventures.org, or also feel free to call me. You, um, you can reach me under my mobile number, which is plus four nine one five seven eight one two nine seven five eight zero. That's basically how you can get hold of me. So um, don't be shy. I'm, I'm happy to share more insights and, and answer your questions. Brilliant. We'll add that also when we post the podcast. So you will add that information. So let's go back a little bit to how you keep it up. Because uh, in our business, so you could work around the clock. And uh, so but I, you have family, you have children. Uh, you have, uh, you look healthy. How do you keep the balance between trying to save the world and taking care of your family and your physical body? What is your daily practice? 
Oh, yeah, that's a good one. And that's, of course, always a challenge Yeah, because it's a, it's a challenging setup we are working with. And um, also, as I'm uh, still based in Germany, there's also a lot of travel involved between Indonesia and Germany right now. Um, but I really try to compare to, to other setups I worked in before. I try to make more space for getting some, some time for myself. Normally, I, I try to start my, my day with an hour of meditation. And uh, that also brings me into the right spirit of just going through the day, being mindful and um, receptive and listening to people and everyone around me. Um, because this is actually how you, first of all, you learn and secondly, you take most fun out of your work. Um, that's that's my experience, yeah, and this is this is actually helping me a lot, and reducing the stress level yeah, within that setup. I remember that uh, at some point a couple of years ago, you went to Dharamshala, where the Dalai Lama is based. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that experience? <laughs> yeah, that that was actually a, very, a wonderful experience, yeah, and I can recommend it to to everybody. So I was actually joining a teaching of the of the Dalai Lama in Dharamshala in in northern India. Yeah, and that really, yeah puts you puts you on a different base yeah, and makes you really focus on the things that are that are really important in life yeah. and so i can i can highly recommend that yeah um, and it's actually something that uh, um, i can i can yeah only share with everyone that uh, it really brought me back to thinking about what do I really want to do here? Yeah, because it's not about making money. Yeah? Um, how much money can I really take with me when I when I leave this planet? Yeah, um, this is the question we need to ask ourselves. Is it really about making money, or what do we really want to spend our time on? What do we want to focus on? What do we want to do in this life? Yeah. And for me, it was really also a, a, a trigger doing that trip, um, going down to those really important questions and then uh, refocusing myself. Actually, two years, uh, not even two years later, I, I uh, left the company I was working with, um, uh, got self-employed and started uh, this endeavor here with Fair Ventures. So, um, yeah, <laughs> it's actually, it's, it's a life-changing experience. Right. So tell us more about this and what kind of meditation do you, do, do you, um, what kind of meditation practice do you use? Mahamudra or Dalai Lama's, um, what kind of tradition? Uh, actually the Tibetan tradition. So the, um, Actually, also the the um, meditation tradition that the uh, Dalai Lama is practicing. Uh, so it's it's an inside meditation kind of practice, and so it's uh, really um, yeah, it it calms you down on the one side, but it's also a lot about reflecting. Yeah. Um, 
yeah, I'm not I'm not an expert about talking about meditation practices, but it's actually it's uh, for me it has those two sides of of focusing myself, but also it creates the basis for for me to solve uh, solve business issues actually as well. Yeah, because it it brings me down to what is really important and what I need to focus on, not only for my personal life, but also for how I run the company. Can you refer people to where they can learn that kind of meditation practice? Oh, <laughs> there's actually a, um, yeah, a lot of a lot of institutions. It's getting into the right meditation practice is something for everyone to find out what what suits you best. Yeah, because there's really a lot of a lot of choice and a lot of differences. Um, there are in in any larger city, at least here in in Europe, you will find different meditation centers. The what I did and what I can only recommend is try a couple of them and see what suits you best. Yeah, I've been a meditator for forty years, and I know that there's a lot of garbage out there too. Yes. So that's why I'm asking. <laughs> what exactly do you recommend? <laughs> yes, and I think there's not that one single recommendation. It's also it's it has to do a bit with personal style, uh, but also keep your eyes open because, as you said, there's also a lot of garbage out there. There are people who may not have only good intentions and uh, be watchful a bit. But normally, when you go with the um, uh, with the meditation practices that are based in Buddhism, then normally um, I, I didn't come across any uh, any garbage practitioners there. Then it's really just a question of personal style. Does it really fit you, or do you need something else that fits you better? Okay. So, how do you want to be remembered? Oh, <laughs> good one. I think um, if we can make work what we are working on right now, if we can, if we manage with Fair Ventures to really come up with a model that is uh, a business approach to reforestation that can be scaled then we would have taken a huge step that would really be a, a game changer to to turning unused landscape into something useful and into protecting our existing forest if we manage that and if i could be remembered for having come up with that model i would be very happy Wow, what a wonderful note to end on. I, I wish you good luck from the bottom of my heart and thank you so much for the wonderful work that you're doing, Robert. Thank you so much. Thank you for thank being you on the Thank you very much, Mariana, for that opportunity. And uh, as I said before, uh, if uh, any of the listeners is interested in learning more, don't be shy. Um, contact me and I'm happy to talk to you and get you more information. Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you so much for your work, Robert. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye. For more on Robert Berman, visit fairventures.org. For more on Dr. Bosazan and the investment turnaround, visit investment-turnaround.com.